not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power of weakness head on. everyone and welcome to the bubble hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery i'm jean mccarthy recovery author blogger and podcast host i've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety a decade ago in my blog i'm pickled and in the books that i write two of them so far and more on the way at jeanmccarthy.ca i tell my stories there and i hold space for your stories here and today I'm holding space for Betsy Byler. Hi, Betsy. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, Jean. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad you're here and I am glad to introduce our listeners to you. So I'm going to not hesitate at all. I'm going to turn the mic right over to you, Betsy. Tell us about yourself and tell us your story. So, hi, my name's Betsy. As we start always in our meetings, I have, um, I am a mom, a wife, a therapist, mental health and chemical dependency, and kind of a crazy cat lady. I'm also in recovery and have been sober from drugs since 1996 and from alcohol since 2004. And my story about how I am, where I am today is personal and professional. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, about 25 miles west, and when you're from that area, you just tell people you're from Chicago or Chicago land. Often when I meet people who grew up in the city of Chicago, they're a little touchy about that. They want to know if your address said Chicago, Illinois, which it did not. It's just that average folks from around the world would never know where Wheaton, Illinois was. I grew up there in what my brother-in-law likes to call Pleasantville, and from the surface, it looks like that. It's a good place to grow up. We had good schools, and I had the same friends and the same house my entire growing up years. It wasn't always like that, though. When you look underneath places that look perfect, they aren't at all. There are lots of things that happen and lots of things that make it not what it seems. Growing up, my parents were not drinkers. They didn't use drugs. Um, I believe that my father still had some kind of alcohol he got from Vietnam and probably still has it now that he never drank. And so that wasn't really part of my life. I did know that my grandmother was an alcoholic, although we didn't discuss that because you just don't in my family. But she was a wine and gin drinker and played bridge and held parties. And it was a very 1950s movie sort of atmosphere. And so we didn't talk about it. And I never saw her intoxicated that I was aware of. And so it wasn't a thing that we really talked about, addiction, I mean. It wasn't something that I was really aware of. As I look back on my life, though, 
I recognized addict behavior in myself now as I look back from very early. And the key thing that stands out for me is this all or nothing. And it permeated most of my life. I remember stories that my mom would tell. She would call them Betsy stories. And one story she told me is that she and my dad were in a bank. And this is when banks were not giant conglomerates. Okay, so this is early 80s, late 70s. And in the bank, getting a loan for my dad to go to grad school. And I had wandered off, apparently. And they found me in the president's office, sitting on his couch, eating candy, and just talking to him. And that behavior was super normal for me. I have always had this way of just doing the thing that I wish to do and being around adults and talking about what was happening. Or I remember also instructing people uh, who were learning how to ski on a bunny ski hill, instructing adults on how to do this when I was a kid. So I was always sort of, I don't know if adventurous, brave, but definitely uh, loud and in charge and didn't have really any kind of um, shame about that growing up. My mom routinely would tell me that it was an honor and a privilege to be my mother. And I know that not everybody grows up with that kind of legacy. And so for addiction to enter my life, it would seem as though that would be far from what would happen with me. And I wasn't immune to addiction, just like, well, the rest of us. When my parents split up, it was when I was about 11. And around that same time, I also had a medical injury where I was in and out of surgery and on crutches for about three years during all of middle school. I had, then there was just, it was just hard. Uh, my parents break up, they're getting a new stepmom, that kind of thing. It was hard, but then as I moved into high school, I had some other things occur, some trauma that I was completely unequipped to deal with. And instead of asking for help, instead of turning to my mom or to anybody else, I decided that I would handle this. Our family was not one that would talk about emotions, kind of at all. We would talk about politics. We would talk about our beliefs. I went to a lot of uh, marches for hunger and poverty and that kind of thing when I was a kid, and we were very active. So in our family, it was a bunch of, it, it was you suck it up, you're not bleeding, you're fine. And it's not that our parents were mean. They were in the Navy and it was, you know, you're okay, tough it out. And I was the expressive one. And so having all these emotions, it often felt like I was the only one having emotions in my whole family. And so they seemed really loud, even though they might not have been. So when I'm in high school and all of a sudden I have this trauma that I can't deal with, I found drugs. And some people in their addiction start out slowly. Some of them build up and they do some experimentation and they do 
some moving into misuse and abuse and then into dependence later. And that was not my path. I found drugs and that was it for me. The very next day, I was on a tear for about three years and I used every day anything I could get my hands on. And thankfully, at the time, I didn't have access to things like heroin or <clears throat> or meth or anything like that. But I was determined to not feel. And that was a that was how it was for those three years. I was holding on for a while. I was a decent student, definitely probably could have done better. Um, but it just wasn't really a focus. My mom was having her own difficulties in her work and worked in the city of Chicago. And so there was commuting. And so she wasn't necessarily able to see all the things I was doing. Also, I had pretty much made it clear that I was going to be bound by nobody. And without my dad around to be the, the heavy, I guess, it was hard for her to control me. I had started smoking cigarettes when I was 11, and I think she found out when I was probably 14, and there was literally nothing she could do about it. At least that's how she felt. And I don't really know, even now as I look back as a mom, what I could have told her to do because I was 100% going to do what I was going to do. And along the way, as I was using, I collected people and brought them with me. I've been a leader my whole life, and that didn't change then, and it didn't change after I got sober. I've always brought people with me. I regret that some of the people who came with me into my using, I don't know that they ever came back out. But in high school, I wasn't really thinking about that. I was running from what the things that had occurred, and then while you're using, for those of you who are in recovery, whether you're uh, or have been using, we know that things happen while you're using that add to the things in your life that you don't want to think about. There was this thing that I believed, though. I believed that the drugs were my best friend. I believed that they were going to take away pain and any kind of anguish that I had. And all it did was put a pause button on it. And when I got sober, man, that was a shock. I had no idea that all of that stuff was going to be right there, like I never left. I remember in high school thinking like that drugs were my best friends. Like I literally wrote poetry about it. It's super cringy and it's hard to remember that, but I absolutely did. I thought that drugs were my only thing that was going to be there for me. And I was trying to hide it some. Um, I got in some trouble at school, got arrested, uh, was charged with possession with intent, and talked my way out of it. I got a lawyer, told my mom a bunch of really um, trying to make her feel bad for me, lies, statements, things like that. And she caught me a few times and I would talk my way out of that because I didn't have any real compass of like, I'm not going to lie or I'm not going to steal or I'm not going to do these terrible things and all the stuff that goes along with using. I was also incredibly angry. And if somebody stepped up to me or crossed me in some way, 
that was a very, <clears throat> that was a bad thing to do for me. And I had a large problem controlling my temper. It wasn't that I was necessarily violent, but it was the fear that I would because I was unafraid before to speak my mind. But you add anger and then you add drugs to that. And I'm a depressant kind of girl. So meth and stimulants never appealed to me. It was more marijuana pills, that kind of thing that really was calming down a lot of my anger. And so I, I shudder to think what I would have been like unleashed without all of that kind of keeping my central nervous system down. I found myself in situations that I couldn't believe I was in. As I look back now, thinking about the danger, like the real danger that I was in with different dealers or in different places that I visited, I think about my own children and the idea of them being in those situations. And I'm, I'm shocked that I came out as, as unscathed as I did. The process of recovery for me was really, I don't know if difference the right word, because I guess we're all different, but it was slow because as soon as I would start to sober up, all of the things that I didn't want to think about were back and they were right there. And I couldn't deal. And so I am a now kind of girl. So it's all or nothing. So either I'm using all the time or I'm not at all. And if I'm feeling things that are overwhelming, I got to shut that down super quickly. And that's it. And I don't want to feel and there's no pushing through it. There's no perseverance. It is solve the problem and be done. So one night I was out and I was out for the night, and I came back the next morning, and my mom had gone through my planner, and why uh, a teenage drug addict has a planner, I, I really don't know to this day, but I did, and it was the days of Franklin Planner being a big thing, and so I had one of those, and I had notes in it that my friends and I had written. There was no texting or phones or any of that kind of thing, and so when we were in school, we wrote notes to each other and folded them in these increasingly intricate ways. And we were somewhat subtle, but not totally subtle, because we were convinced that we wouldn't lose those notes to each other. And so my mom went through all my things and found these notes and found out who I was using with. And so I come home. It's probably mid-afternoon. And she was like, Elizabeth? And that's always a key, right? Technically, I'm Elizabeth, but Pretty much nobody calls me that. And she's like, you're going to therapy. And I said, uh, no, I'm not. And she said, oh, yes, you are. Because if you don't, and she pulls out a hand, these handful of notes. And she's like, if you don't, then I'm going to call all these kids' parents. And I'm going to tell them what they've been up to. And so I'm just staring at her. And I'm pretty sure I probably started screaming and swearing, which was my go-to. And she would not be moved. I was a bully for sure. And in years past, have called my mother numerous times to apologize for my behavior and how she didn't just kill me. And, but at the time, she just couldn't, she couldn't usually stand up to me. This time, though, she would not be moved. I found out that one of my friends who was an older, older friend, my sister's age, was really had been, she was really worried about me. She'd been concerned. We had been at a party and apparently I was 
totally out of hand. And so she had gone to my mom as well. And that sparked the looking through all my things. So what followed were visits to nine therapists, not eight, not 10, but nine. And I remember only a few of them because remember, I'm still using during this time. So I am blown out of my mind when I'm going into these offices and I am angry and snarly and ready to tell everyone where they can go and what they can do with therapy. And the eighth one was supposed to be an addiction specialist. I remember that. And he was a male, which was new. And I started telling him a story. And I remember it was about being at a party. And he says, he interrupts me and says, don't you know you could get hurt? And I look, just looked at him and was like, oh, mm-mm. and I said a few words that I won't say on a nice podcast. And I walked and I got up and I walked out. I think I was in there probably 15 minutes. And I was like, next. And I was determined that I was not going to find a therapist. Now, I think part of me wanted to, because there was definitely the part of me that knew I was in pain and that I was miserable and suffering inside my own head. I didn't believe I was fine. I don't know that I ever told anybody I was fine. I just didn't know that anyone would be able to fix what was wrong with me. And so the ninth therapist, her name was Betsy. And there aren't that many Betsy's running around in the world. And a couple of my sister's friends had seen this Betsy. And they liked her. But I'm different. At least that was what I thought. And so I go in and I meet this Betsy. And I don't remember our first session very well. I don't remember what she, what she said to me. This was, it's super weird that it's almost, <laughs> that it's 25-ish years ago. Um, but I remember thinking, huh maybe we can do this. She asked me something or in whatever way I answered her and I shared more than I meant to. And I realized that she had got me, that she found a way around my defense. And I respected that. I wasn't angry about it. I figured she had skill. And so I decided, well, maybe. And so I kept seeing Betsy. And I remember I would try to go there mostly sober so I, I was using all day, every day, morning and day and night. And so that wasn't necessarily easy, but I wouldn't go there totally high. I would try to ease off out of respect for her. She never said anything about it, but it definitely was there that I was trying to be respectful of this one person that I felt like could see me maybe. And I remember sitting in her office and having this moment of, you know, I could do this. I could do this job. Someday I'm going to get sober at least I think I am. And I could do this. I could work with kids like me. And I went back to whatever it is we were talking about, but I didn't forget that moment. And as I moved through high school, I did in fact get sober when I was early in college from drugs. And I started working with kids who were in high school doing a mentoring kind of role with an organization called Young Life while I was at Michigan State University, and I loved it. And I was still drinking, but not often because I wasn't really a drinker. I didn't really love it. I only used it when I couldn't find whatever drug I was looking for. And so I only drank once in a while. And it wasn't even, it was maybe, I don't know, four or five times a year. What I figured out, though, was that 
I made really stupid choices when I was drinking. I really wanted to believe that I could drink like a normal person, quote unquote, but I couldn't. I don't have this thing in my head that tells me that I should just have one or two. My, my ability to moderate is broken. And so it was, I think 2004 was the last time, well, I know 2004 was the last time I had anything to drink. And I believe that last time I didn't make dumb choices, but the pretty much every other time before, with rare exception, I made some really dangerous and dumb choices that normally I would never have made. And that if you had looked at that compared to the rest of my life, it would have been totally incongruent and seemed like I was a very different person. But that addict me still existed, still lives in me, still lives in me now. I recognize her when she's wanting to get reckless or is angrier than I want her to be and have worked over my recovery to deal with my issues, to deal with the things that caused me to use to begin with. Recovery for me was a lot of a spiritual journey for me. It was a lot of service work. And it wasn't until after I finished graduate school that I really found what I was trying to do, which was abstinence-based recovery. I didn't know what that was. I just knew where I was, that I just couldn't drink and I couldn't use drugs and that other people might be able to use them. But for me, it was a no-go because I would lose sight of who I was, what I wanted, and fall into that hole. After college, I was trying to make a decision about was I going to stay with this organization I'd been working with or was I going to go to grad school? So when I went to grad school, it was to work with kids like me. I still wanted to do that. I had these girls that when I was doing this mentoring program were kind of just like me. Now, some of them were really not at all like me. They were great kids uh, doing lots of athletic stuff, really not at all in the trouble that I was in. And there were some girls that were on the fringes who would be drawn to me. And I had a rule that they weren't, couldn't be high if they were going to hang out with me. And I asked them to wait until after. And they did. And I got to speak into those girls' lives and make a difference for them as an adult who would hear them. And I loved it. And it felt so fulfilling. And not just for my girls that were using, but my girls who just needed an adult. I knew that I needed more skills because I was not a therapist and each one of them had their own stories and things that they needed help with that while I could hear them, I, I needed more, which took me to grad school. And I decided as well there that I wanted to do my internship with kids who had some pretty severe trauma and some drug addiction and found myself in Montana, which was a giant uh, culture shock for me coming from Chicago and working at a facility there with kids who were living there for probably a year or more and really, really severe trauma, the kind of stuff you read about in the paper, every kid's story worse than the next. I believed that I knew what I needed to know coming out of grad school, that I was going to be able to work with kids and work with addiction and I had all the skills I needed. And what I found out when I got out of grad school is that I did not. 
one of my first jobs after I graduated, did my internship, all that kind of stuff, was working in a residential facility, a different one, for teenage girls who were, were there for drugs and alcohol. It was a 45-day stay for them, and the girls who were there were pretty heavily involved. They were not just dabbling here. They were a lot of them involved in gangs or in other ways having really difficult home lives. Every one of them had trauma. And I found out that I did not have the skills that I needed to work with addiction. And I was shocked. I was the only master's level person on a team of bachelor's level folks. And all of these bachelor's level people who um, had gone through school to do things with chemical dependency specifically, and they knew way more than I did. And I was routinely learning things when I'm going to groups and like co co-leading these groups, I would be learning things that I didn't know and learning about treating addiction. And I felt shocked and incredibly lucky that I was able to be in this place. And I kind of felt like I had dodged something because in my future, I was going to be working with other therapists and I didn't want them to know that I was so ill-equipped. So I worked at this place for a couple of years, and I remember seeing the woman who ran the place at the end of my time there, exit interview, and I said to her, I can't believe you hired me. And she said, why? And I said, I had no idea what I was doing. And as I moved forward in my, to my next two positions, something started dawning on me, and it was that I was not the only therapist who didn't know how to treat addiction. In fact, most of them didn't. Not just over half, I mean 90, 95% of the therapists I ran into didn't touch working with addiction at all. I'd be in staff meetings and hear people say, oh, no, 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 that's chemical dependency. You got to send that to a, to a CD counselor. Or, oh, nope, they're using meth. Nope, they got to get sober first. Can't work with them. And I didn't feel that way anymore because I knew what I was doing. I mean, to the extent that you do as you're early in your career. And I was thinking to myself, why? Why do we not get trained how to deal with substance use? From the beginning of time where humans existed, people have found ways to get high or drunk. That is just something we do as humans. When given a situation, we figure out ways to do it. Why weren't we trained on something so fundamental? And I didn't find any particular conspiracy why that wasn't a thing. I think what happened is as people developed programs for therapist training, they tried to include everything they could, and they looked at other established programs, and other established programs didn't have it either. And so they were like, hmm, they just did the thing. And there were these tests for each state, for each person in the license we have. This is in the U.S. anyway. And we had to train so that we could pass the test. And the tests have nothing to do with substance use. Somehow, substance use became this entirely different subject. And it was just not something that was our business. Even though it's literally in the same manual as every other mental health disorder that exists. That one section, though, is in there. We're legally allowed as therapists to diagnose it but most of us won't because we're not trained. 
As a therapist, one of the worst things you can do is practice out of scope, meaning you weren't trained to do a thing and you're doing it anyway. And so people avoid it like the plague. Over the years, as I was getting more comfortable being a therapist and I became a supervisor and then a director and I was training therapists and interns, I made it my mission that all of the people that passed through my shop were going to know how to do substance use and feel competent at it. We had an excellent team. And over the years, I've gotten the privilege to work with amazing therapists who now aren't going to have to refer out. When people go to a therapist, they want to know that that person can help them. They don't want to bring up their substance use and have that therapist go, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to refer you out. Or have the therapist worse, a worse outcome would be the therapist just ignores it. When a person comes in to go to therapy, they usually don't call and say, I have a drinking problem, I have a drug problem, I have a gambling problem. They call and say, I'm depressed, or I'm anxious, or I'm grieving because somebody passed away. They're talking to an intake person who's a representative, a clerical person, not a therapist, and they're not going to share their whole heart with them. And so the therapist comes in and they're treating for them for depression, and a lot of therapists aren't even comfortable asking the questions about substance use. It's a huge problem. And when I moved into private practice, so this is where we are about 2019, I had been a director of an agency and was moving into private practice, which was shocking in and of itself for me because that wasn't the plan, but the universe had other plans for me. And so here I was, I was sitting there going, okay, so I can do therapy. It's kind of nice to not be responsible for anybody after years of being responsible for programming and budgets and doing therapy and all of that. It was nice to just be me. But I missed that part about educating and training therapists to understand and treat addiction. And so I thought about, what can I do? And so that's how I came up with the idea of a podcast. I am passionate about working with substance use, and I am passionate that therapists can do it and that they do not have to go back to school. I don't believe that as therapists we need to get some more degree or another certification. Yes, I think we need information. As an average therapist, for people who don't know about substance use, where would they even start? Where would they even begin to think about how to learn enough to treat addiction and feel competent? But for me, I, I know those answers. I spent the last 16 years of my life training as a therapist and training other therapists. And after a while, you figure out what people need to know. Yes, of course, there's there's more information that someone could have, but they don't need all of that just to treat someone. And so that's where I came up with the podcast. So November of 2020, I started the All Things Substance podcast, and that's what I've been doing. And I've really enjoyed sharing information, and I have heard from some listeners all over the world, which is super shocking and really wonderful. And I'm super honored for the privilege. I am not sure all of the direction I'm going to be going in the future, but I have found a way to share this information. And hopefully my message gets out there to therapists so that we can bring more hope and healing and freedom to our clients and feel like we're doing the right things for them 
and they don't have to go elsewhere in order to get help with their addiction. So that brings us to today. Thanks, Betsy. I really think it's cool that what you're doing, you're able to cast even a farther net than even just the people that you're working with, which is significant in itself. Helping people individually is one thing, but then to empower other therapists to be more helpful is is just to magnify and amplify the message. And I think that's amazing. Do you find that therapists don't know what they don't know, are hungry for answers? Do you, do you feel like the system can change and improve? What's your take on that? I think that some therapists are aware that they're missing something. I think that those of us who've been in the field longer may have a harder time adjusting. My podcast, when I thought about who I was going to be reaching out to, clearly all therapists of any level of experience, but mainly I was looking for post post license, so our full license, but probably less than five years, maybe less than 10 years experience, because they're still figuring out, oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do with all these people, and that we all have to know so many things and be generalists, sort of family medical doctors that know all the things and don't get to specialize. Because I think therapists who've been around a while, they have gotten into this pattern where they just don't work with substance use. And so I think it's a little harder to convince them. We are terrified of practicing out of scope. I mean, truly, there's only a couple things you can do that are worse than that in the land of therapy. And they're pretty severe. And so I think it's hard to convince people that they need to know more until they have someone in their office that they have a great relationship with and they're figuring out that there's this piece that they need. Then they might be able to say, whew, this person's not going to go to another therapist. If I transfer them, they're going to drop off. And so what am I going to do? How do I help them now? And so it's sort of this consistent message that I'm trying to put out there so that as people realize that they need help in this area, especially those of us who've been around a while, that they have some place to go. I love your story about that Twilight Zone moment when therapist number nine walks in and her name is Betsy. And <laughs> I mean, that's just magical. Um, I, I'm sure that even, you know, if, if you're if you're not a woo-woo type person, you would see that as a sign or as something, you know, impactful just in the, mm-hmm. in the serendipity of it all. Um, but I'm wondering now, as you work with clients, do you often find yourself facing a Betsy and can you help Betsy a Betsy? <laughs> oh yeah. I love Betsy's. Um, they're my favorite angry teenagers that use drugs, angrier, the better. And I adore them. And in my 16 years, I think there's only been two kids that I just could not get through to. And there were some really big circumstances about why. And part of it is the realness that I present to them and 
trying to believe that each one of them, that some part of them, however remote, wants to be heard and wants to be different and doesn't love what's happening in their life. And it might take a little while. In fact, one of the girls that I've seen most recently, that took me months. She was a tough kid, but it was like a switch one day. I don't even know exactly what happened, but one day she was snarly and angry, just like normal. And the next week she was like friendly, open, vulnerable. And again, I was blown away by the shift, even though I've seen it a lot. And I don't pretend that that I have to be the one or that I'm the best person. I am at their moment in their life, and they are willing to give me a shot, and that's usually all I'm asking them. And I'm pretty honest about it. If they don't want therapy, like, for instance, this girl that I was referencing, she was court-ordered. She doesn't want to see me. And I was pretty honest. I said, look, you know, you don't – I know you don't want to do this. I know you hate therapy. You don't like therapists. And if they're going to make you, you might as well choose who you're going to be made to see. So if you're going to be made to see somebody and you want that someone to be me, okay, then we'll give this a shot. And not expecting that they're going to instantly trust me. And it is a joy and I'm surprised every time it works. Yeah, because being a teenager is really, you feel so powerless. I remember feeling that way as a teenager and thinking mm-hmm. you feel like you're an adult you feel like you have all the answers everything you think seems so true and so real and yet you know you can't drive yourself somewhere or <laughs> you're not paying the bills so other people mm-hmm. always have power over you so I would guess that to just be given some power would feel pretty good and would help to build a bond One thing that I find interesting being in recovery is that when we go into a a sharing circle or recovery meeting of whatever stripe, we are stepping out of the world of the people that have to put up with us and engage with us in the circumstances of our life and live with the outcomes of our behavior or negativity or whatever. I mean, it can be hard to be a family member, a loved one of someone who is in active addiction Mm -hmm. and in the room you're sort of in this suspended animation with other people who are only there to support you. And they don't care if you're difficult. They don't care if you're not nice to live with. All they care about is I'm here with you right now. I'm going to love you where you're at until you can love yourself. I I know that there's good in you and I'm going to hold up this mirror to help you see it. And it's quite a magical experience. It, It helps the person in recovery It also inadvertently, I think, helps the family member, family members and the people in that person's life who are just, you know, out of resources. They're exhausted and they're hurt and they may have a diminished capacity to see the good in that person or to express their love for them. They're just tired. So there's so much gratitude that there are these places that people can go when they're struggling and find support and love. And the relationship with a therapist is different, but similar. (laughs) So as a person in recovery, you sort of have an overlap of those experiences of knowing the importance of that. So can you talk about Mm -hmm. for people that are trying to get sober on their own or for trying to, you know, manage their own recovery and 
that included me for the first two years of my recovery. I just was just doing it myself and doing my best. But my recovery really, really was became joyful when I experienced what it's like to share that with someone else. So can you just speak to the importance of having a place to go, whether it's a therapist or recovery circle or both, of being with people that are outside of our everyday interactions that can help us come at problems from a different direction? I started my recovery alone as well. And it was, I didn't even know to call it recovery at the time. Um, I just knew that I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And it took a lot of trial and error for me to figure out, I can't do this. Other people can. And I felt broken. Like I was something inherently wrong with me that I am so broken that I can't even go have drinks with people and be normal, quote unquote. And when I found other people in recovery and they gave me the language for it, it was super freeing. I remember reading parts of some recovery literature. And for me, that ended up being uh, the big book of AA, NA. And I don't believe that you have to do the steps to get sober. I believe that there are lots of paths to recovery. It's just that that was the one that was around for me. And it is the one that clearly is is most well-known, and at least in the U.S., and really accessible. But I remember reading some some of the things in the big book, some of the things in the, in the basic text of NA about what it's like to be chemically dependent. And I felt like there are other people. I am not crazy. I am not broken. I am just an addict. And it was super freeing. I know that when I say that I'm an addict, people get uncomfortable who aren't necessarily in recovery because it's like admitting something that should be shameful, I guess. It's not that you can really, they don't say anything. It's just that they don't know how much that's a non-shameful thing to me. It is, I'm a daughter, I'm a therapist, I'm an addict. They're all the same to me. It's all just part of who I am. What it means is a specific thing to me that I can't use mood-altering substances, period. And I don't have to have shame over it. And the language of recovery and the process for me helped me come to grips with some of the things that I did while I was using and understand that part of myself. And I came to peace with the uglier parts of myself and the depths that I will go to to avoid pain. And so I I found that without hearing it in other people, it was super isolating. And I found that with my clients too. I have a, a number of people who come to me because they are anxious, depressed, and I end up finding out that we have a substance use issue. And I make it clear that I'm not expecting that they want to get sober. And if they want to work on it, we'll work on it. And that I'm not going to harp on them. And it takes them a while usually to be really straight with me about how much they're using. Because those of us in recovery and even actively using know that addiction and alcoholism has to exist in darkness and we have to hide it in order for it to continue, usually anyway. And so I am creating a space for them where they recognize that they have the freedom to just tell me the truth about it and I can normalize behavior 
um, hooked up with someone because they had something you needed, like alcohol or drugs, that's pretty normal, actually. Or stealing money from people or not remembering what happened or any number of things is really normal if you're an addict or an alcoholic. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible, certainly, but it is a reason that is better than I'm a terrible person and I do these awful things and I am bad and wrong. And I think that the shame is what keeps people stuck because as they get sober, what they find out is all of the things that they haven't dealt with are still present. I always tell people that the closet that in the back of your head where you shove all those things you don't want to think about, it's only so big. And time does not heal wounds. It may lessen some sting. You might have some form of healing because people do heal naturally. But there are some things that time is not going to heal that wound. It's just distant. And if you open that door or if that door, that closet gets too full, stuff starts to spill out. You could be 30, 40, 50, doesn't matter. And that stuff, when you start talking about it, it's like it just happened. And when that happens, that can mess with you. And if your coping skill has been to use, that line between realizing that that pain is so raw and using is extremely short. And a lot of us, when we should have been learning how to build coping skills, we were using. And so we're not real great at knowing how to cope. It's not a criticism. It's just a fact. And when you can accept that fact because you hear other people around you talking about it, it's easier to say, I'm struggling with some stuff that came up and I don't know what to do because all I want to do is, is numb it out. And everyone in the room is like, yeah, I totally get that. Why don't we do this or come hang out with me? Or and I think the recovery community, it is, for me, freedom of just knowing that whether or not the person in the room has my exact story We are similar in a lot of ways, and they aren't going to judge me, and it is like an amazing freeing thing, even though in the beginning it's super scary to think about sharing your story with others or sharing things that you swore you'd take to your grave. But as I've heard you say, Jean, on the other side, it is so much better. It is so much better. If I could bottle what recovery is like, And the freedom of knowing you don't have secrets and that you're not worried about those things. Wow. I I just wish I could share that with people in just a glimpse that that kind of freedom exists. I'm not saying that it's never hard or that things aren't a struggle after you get sober. It's just there's a struggle for a different reason. And you don't have to clean up the mess that using leaves us. You just deal with whatever mess life gave you, and it's not extra complicated. So I find that recovery communities are amazing. Yes, people can do it, have done it on their own. Some people can, and some people absolutely cannot. And it is not about strength or willpower or any of that. It is a multitude of factors. And I would always recommend support over non-support for everyone even if you're not a people person. There's a very popular viral video of a 
that shares the message that the opposite of addiction is connection. And I know it's really popular, but it irritates me, to be honest. And I'm curious what your take is on it. So listeners, if you love this video and you've shared it with me or with other people, this is not judgment on you for loving it. I hear the truth of what is being said in that, in that video, but I also feel like isolation is a symptom of addiction and an outcome of addiction and not always the cause of it. I mean, it's one, it's a factor of it, but it's not the only thing. So that argument that the opposite of addiction is connection to me, it oversimplifies so much, especially for people who already don't understand addiction and think, oh, well, you know, what's wrong with you? You just need more connection. It's, it's a piece of the puzzle is connection, but it's not the whole answer. That's my take on it. I'm curious what your take is on that. So I saw someone post that in my feed that I love dearly and who I think is brilliant. And I know her well enough to know where she's coming from and what she means by that, because I do know that she understands addiction. I, I, she worked for me. <laughs> so I, I know where she's at. And the struggle with that is I think it's, it's answering the wrong question. And of what do we do about addiction? Well, I think that connection as humans is something that we need. And I think that when we are using, we definitely disconnect ourselves from anyone who's not using or isn't supportive or at least at the very least neutral about our use. But part of the thing about recovery is choosing those connections, choosing which ones are appropriate and healthy and setting limits and boundaries and learning about yourself. My issue with that statement is that it, it ignores the biological component of addiction that I believe is there. I believe that addiction isn't a choice. I believe that we chose to use. We chose to use substances. We did not choose to get addicted to them. We didn't know that was going to happen. Every one of us believes that we're immune from something. The number of people wandering around without masks um, is proof of the fact that we believe it's not going to happen to us. And we didn't know. I certainly didn't know when I was using that I wouldn't be able to stop. I chose to use, absolutely. And I'm responsible 100% for everything I did while I was using, everything that I did that was my fault, as opposed to taking fault for someone else's actions. And I know that part of different, different things in my life set me up to be someone who became addicted to the substances. I have a sister, full blood, same parents, same upbringing, she did not turn into a drug addict. And it wasn't that her life was so different than mine. It was a number of things. And I, and I can't say what they are. But I think that the idea that the answer is just connection and we just love each other is kind of how that reads. Even if I, even if I know that that's not the intention, that's how it reads to me. And that I feel like if I was still using... I think I would want to go get high, to be honest, mm -hmm. because how do you connect with people when you're so deep in shame and darkness? That isn't enough. If love was enough, we would all get sober. 
if the love of your family, of your children, of yourself was enough to get you sober, like we would do that. And there's more there. And I think when you're in a room with other addicts and alcoholics, we, do, we sort of understand that because it wasn't that we didn't love our family or that we didn't want to be different. There was a whole host of things that got us. And so I struggle with that. I mean, one of the ways to overcome addiction, I think, is connection. It isn't the, it isn't the only thing, though. It's not the opposite. Mm-hmm. To me, the opposite of addiction is sobriety. So, uh, you know, because for me, it is about abstinence-based. I can't. Um, I can't use. I, I heard a, a comedian He's really wild and kind of uh, vulgar in ways that are not my deal. But I heard him, I was watching something and he was talking with some other comedians and clearly those other guys super pro smoking weed, right? That was their thing. And he's like, I wish I could smoke weed, but every time I smoke weed, I wind up with a needle in my arm. And I'm like, yep, I get that. You know, I wasn't, I didn't use IV, but it, it would have happened. I absolutely would have gone that way if I had kept using. And for those of us who know about addiction, we know that that's, it's, it's freeing to me to accept that about myself. Yeah. I sometimes think and say that none is easier than some. When you have had the neurological change, when your pleasure reward circuitry has been completely hijacked and rewired by addiction, Mm -hmm. There really is no some trying to manage some is all consuming and and it's just keeping the loaded gun in your pocket. But none is actually easier, especially for those of us who are have that like zero or ten personality. Five is really hard. So yeah. One more question for you on this vein: Do you feel that addiction is always a symptom of underlying issues? Can addiction ever be just addiction, or is it always something you have to peel? heal back the addiction and heal something underneath it? Um, In my experience, I would say the majority of the time there's underlying stuff, um, but not always. I have met people who, no trauma, great family, um, not even family history of addiction, right? Just pretty average and wound up being an addict and an alcoholic. And it's not necessarily mm, super common because I think even if they didn't have something that brought them to it, mental illness or trauma from growing up, what happens while we're using adds to a list of things that we feel bad or shame or things that happened, whether it's things we did or assault or relationships or whatever we end up having a lot to sort out at the end. But in terms of how it starts, I do think it can, anybody can be an addict if you work hard at it, an addict or an alcoholic. And I've talked to some people who, as I've done their assessments and worked with them, truly there wasn't anything. Mm-hmm. It just, they couldn't stop. I will say that the whole zero to 10 thing was present though. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost always present I don't, I can't think of a case where it hasn't been, where they didn't have that as a kid, where they were kind of like the, you know, do all the things, whatever area it was. It might not have been as out as sort of 
public as I was, you know, willing to be singing, hanging onto a statue in the middle of a mall at the top of my lungs when I'm three, <laughs> you know, but it definitely was there um, in my, in my experience with people. I, by the way, I, I love your stories of you as a child. You just sound adorable. And um, it, I love that your, your mom was just such a strong supporter of you and didn't try to squelch your individuality. Also, uh, you know, I also started smoking very young. I was 13 and I'm the youngest in my family. So it it was the seventies and everybody smoked in my household except my mom. So when I started smoking, as did my older sisters and my dad, my mom, I think was very resigned to it. And she said, you know, just don't lie to me if you're going to smoke be honest about it. So at 13, you know, I was prancing around the house with a cigarette in my hand and thinking, yeah, my mom lets me smoke. Looking back on it though, I really wish that she had said to me, I want better for you. I'm, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. You know, I, I realize I can't control you, but I want better for you. And I feel like your mom gave you that when Mm -hmm. she said, okay, you've hit the wall. This is the line you're going to therapy. What's your relationship like with your mom now? And do you feel that the acceptance and support that she gave you was a factor in your ability to gain recovery? So my relationship with my mom as an adult, once I moved out, was really, we were pretty close and still, I still fought against what I felt like was don't control me. I can do what I want. And she was always, I guess, supportive and sort of letting me be who I am. My mom was very strong. She was very independent. She was an officer in the Navy. And my mom, she was pretty awesome. And so in our own right, as women, she raised my sister and I to be very independent and capable. And so it never occurred to me until I started working with people, how other women were raised. Like I didn't really understand the meek, don't be seen, don't stand up for yourself, don't have boundaries, like message that a lot of women got. I I heard it in media and through others, but it really, it was so foreign to me. And there were other things certainly that I struggled with societally, but that, that really wasn't one of them. I feel like as I look back at what she did and didn't do when I was in high school, when I was using, I feel like there might've been, mm, there might've been some things she could have done, like not hire a lawyer. um, The times that she did not pay for my fines, not bail me out, those kinds of things, because I had thousands of dollars in fines and there were cops and lawyer fees and she paid for all of it. And so I, I kind of feel like maybe that wasn't super great. I understand why she did it because she wanted to protect me from future fallout. And so I can understand that as a parent, like I, there's almost nothing I wouldn't do for my children. And so I understand that, but I think that she did what she could do. I think as other people think your mom knew you were using drugs and you weren't like grounded And I would say, she tried grounding me. The last time she tried grounding me, I was like in eighth grade. And I'm pretty sure I told her to F off and walked out of the house. Like, what was she going to do? 
I was definitely bigger than her. And she was kind of scared of me physically because I was so angry and so quick to be loud. I think she did what she could do. What she did say was, don't lie to me and, and you come home at night. And I was like, all right. And so I did. I didn't necessarily tell her everything, but I, she knew where I was 99% of the time and who I was with. She might not have known everybody or where we were. There were certainly moments where I was out of state and she didn't know it. But for the most part, she knew where I was and I was in contact and I came home when I was supposed to. Either I was staying at a friend's house or I was home by curfew. I mean, what drug addict is home by curfew? So I think she did what she could do with what she had based on the information and what she knew of me. I think if she had tried to clamp down harder, I would have absolutely gone nuclear. And the amount of recklessness that I had with no regard for my own safety was totally outrageous. And over the years, as you know, I was sober early, you know, she always talked about how impressed she was by me. And, and it was, I know that she was in awe of who I am in a way that I suppose only moms can do. Um, she passed away really suddenly in 2017. And it was devastating for me in a way that I can't explain. And even as a therapist, I wasn't I don't know if you can be prepared for that. I, I just don't know. But it was my memory of her belief in me, her strength, the way that she did things her own way in the 50s and 60s and 70s and just lived the way she was going to live without all these expectations. I realize how much of how my sister and I are, how, how much of us comes from her. And, mm-hmm. and I'm so proud to be hers and the legacy that she gave me. I know that, honestly, lots of people don't get that. And, and I know that I am who I am because of her. And I know that she would have loved what I'm up to now. And so I think about that quite a bit. But I know that I survived my high school years because she kept the hold on me that she could. It was like, it was like holding onto my wrist without touching me. Mm. Um, so that I knew that I was safe and I would come home and she was my mom. But if she had even tried to be tough or gentle, I absolutely would have freaked out and done whatever I could to, to shut her out. Cause I was, I was not reachable by that moment. I think she did what she could do. I know it's easy for other people to say, what do you mean she didn't stop you from smoking? Uh, <laughs> what was she going to do? <laughs> I mean, I, mm-hmm. I I do tell parents now, I tell parents all the time, you need to tell your kids that you don't want them to do a thing. Because a kid will tell me, well, I'll say, well, how does your parent feel about that? Well, I don't know. They don't care. And I'm like, what do you mean they don't care? Well, they haven't said anything. And I'm like, okay, well, let's be clear. I don't want you using drugs. I don't want you smoking pot. I don't want you drinking. And I also want you to be straight with me about it so that we can find out. So we just know where things are. Okay. Like I'm just clear. And I feel like I wish the same thing you had said that I just wish she had um, 
been more explicit about this is not what I want for you. I knew that, mm-hmm. but I do, I do think that hearing it would have been helpful. I'm not saying it would have stopped me, but her opinion about me did mean something. This has been a great discussion. I so enjoy your story and chatting with you and hearing your perspective on everything. Thank you for taking the time to tell your story here. How can our listeners find you, connect with you, hear your podcast, or reach you if they'd like to talk to you some more? Sure. Um, I So my website is BetsyBeiler.com, and it's Byler with the B, like Tyler. People struggle sometimes with how to spell it. So it's BetsyBeiler.com, and the podcast is linked there, and there's a contact form, or you can email me, which is Betsy at BetsyBeiler.com, and I'd be happy to to talk with anyone about whatever's happening. Um, the podcast is also on uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, all of those things as well. It comes out every Monday, and I have really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I appreciate what you're doing for people and offering all these different stories. I think that stories for us as addicts and alcoholics are huge because we see ourselves in each other and hearing that someone else had a life similar to ours and got sober and there's hope that is, that's the promise. And so I appreciate Mm -hmm. what you've done all these years and all of these podcasts. I know how much it takes to put into it more than people would guess. (laughs) Um, And I appreciate (laughs) all of your work because I think, that having people speaking their truth and having the courage to come out about addiction is healing for people. And so I appreciate it and appreciate you having me on your show. Oh, thanks, Betsy. I appreciate you appreciating me. (laughs) It's nice when people do understand what goes into it because it is a lot. It it is. And uh, it takes for every one hour of of content, there's, you know, three or four hours of effort behind the scenes. So, uh, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't come lightly, but it packs a good punch. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Thanks for, for honoring that. I appreciate it. And listeners, we appreciate you too, because without you here listening and resonating with what we're saying, all we're doing is just having a conversation between ourselves. So thank you for giving meaning and purpose to what's happening here. That's all for this week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on. Just want to be free from power.
Just want to be free 